Welcome to The Conversation. I'm Benjamin Dixon, host of The Benjamin Dixon Show. Joining us today is Khalil Gibran Muhammad, who is a professor of history, race, and public policy at Harvard Kennedy School. And he's also featured in the recent film, uh, Racially Charged, America's Misdemeanor Problem. Professor Muhammad, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, Ben. Thank you. Could you tell us a little bit about the film? Yeah, the film is uh, directed by Robert Greenwald. It is uh, based off of a book, Punishment Without Crime, which is the first major treatment of the misdemeanor or petty crime system in America, uh, written by um, my colleague, Alexandra Natapoff. And uh, she's at the Harvard Law School. She's, it's, it's what, really a book that takes the scale and scope of this system um, to task for the abuses uh, of due process uh, in every kind of way in which fairness and justice is not operating in the criminal system. And, you know, I, I, as I was reading about um, the film and some of the things that are featured in the film, it is it's so reflective of how the prison system has been used over the years, um, particularly to target African-Americans and almost from a labor perspective. Could you speak on that for us? Yeah, so one of the things is, I mean, we, we are all creatures of our time. And so if we don't know our history or have a deep sense of it, it's easy to think that we're passing judgment on people who have just made bad decisions and the system otherwise treats people who are worthy um, of the presumption of innocence and uh, who follow the rules with the kind of justice they deserve. But it, it turns out that so much of our current system, which in its most pernicious ways is about generating revenue to satisfy the budgetary needs of courts and law enforcement communities or basic general operating funds like in a place like Ferguson, Missouri. And if we look at it in its present form and go back in time to the period after the end of slavery when systems of convict labor and chain gangs emerged just after African-Americans stepped into their freedom, we see almost in the most horrifying ways the exact same uh, perverse incentives where the, the basic idea was if you could coerce black, black people back to a plantation um, based on the threat of punishment, then you had about as good a post-slavery system of a neo form of slavery as the one you just gotten rid of. And if they didn't want to cooperate, well, then you could uh, charge them with crimes they didn't commit and lease them out to private contractors who were able to exploit their labor. So there's a lot to be said for how much our present looks a lot like the past. Wow. And what's fascinating about that is the that connection that you're talking about with the present and the past. Um, and, and oftentimes I feel we when we have these kind of conversations, especially in the political arena, um, it, it's almost as though they opponents to this type of conversation from our position or our proponents for uh, the prison system, the justice system as it is right now. They try to sever the cause from the effect. Right. We see the effect, which is over incarceration, uh, private prison, the entire prison industrial complex. But there seems to be a concerted effort to disconnect and sever the reality of how this system was built. Could you speak to that ongoing process of severing the reality of where we are from exactly how we got here and how that continues to ex really the continues the exploitation of human labor? Yeah. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a really good point. I, I think that uh, political defenders, uh, political elite, elites and, and other policymakers 
and very vocal funders, uh, wealthy people who, who basically shape our our political system, those who defend the status quo, who believe that mostly our legal system is functioning just fine and our uh, police officers are, are not engaging in systemically discriminatory practices, but catching all the bad guys and that everyone who goes to prison deserves to be there, yeah. are themselves actively denying uh, the fact that it was only 50 years ago that during the height of the civil rights era, um, Southern sheriffs tried to lock up as many uh, peacefully assembled nonviolent protesters as possible, as what happened in Albany, Georgia, or Birmingham, Alabama, just two of the most uh, studied cases. So that's just the most obvious and the tip of the iceberg of the way that the criminal justice has, system has been used to crush dissent. Um, many people know, of course, that uh, under Richard Nixon, the war on crime accelerated into the war on drugs. and. Right. John Ehrlichman described that system as really about uh, crushing the black community and the anti-war left uh, with the instrument of the criminal justice system. So the evidence is clear, but the political manipulation and the propaganda that somehow none of these things are connected is about as absurd as what we're seeing play out in Georgia with regard to uh, Brian Kemp, the current Secretary of State, describing this not as Jim Crow, as if like, come on, how ridiculous is that? But that's exactly what it is. So, right. you know, it is what it is. Wow, uh, and it's disconcerting. It, I, you, you mentioned Ferguson, and um, I'm um, to remind the viewers, like the report that came out that showed exactly how much of the city was funded based on the fines and penalties levied by uh, not only the justice system there, the courts there, but also the policing agencies there. Could you speak about that a little bit more, but also in context of cash bail? how that has become a system in and of itself that not only keeps people in prison, but also funds this system. Yeah, so what we know in the case of Ferguson, when the Department of Justice did a systems uh, study uh, to look at the context in which Darren Wilson uh, killed uh, Michael Brown, they found that uh, from the law enforcement community to the court system, there was a clear understanding and in fact a directive that police officers would generate enough fines and fees to help to meet the budget goals of, of the city of Ferguson. And how they did that, however, was to literally make up and pick off people in, in their daily uh, routines. Uh, the, one of the most uh, horrendous of these cases was the case of a guy, a motorist named Mike, who was sitting watching his child play on a playground. And a police officer walks up to him, says, can I see your license and registration? And the guy hands him uh, before he hands it to him, he said, what's your name? He says, well, his name, my name is Mike. And, and he hands him his license. It says, Michael. And he says, you lied to me. And that, that led to a series of fines. And those fines led to penalties for not paying the fines. And of course, for low-income people, you know, getting a $200 fine could be the difference between paying the rent or not paying the rent. So that's just a small slice of what that report found. But it was, it, it was an unflinching examination of the systemic racism that the black residents of Ferguson faced. Listen, cash bail is about as unconstitutional as anything else in a system designed for due process and equal protection. Because the bottom line is, if you're poor in this country and you cannot pay bail, you will go to jail. And when you go to jail, the stigma of the jail experience itself contributes to the likelihood of future conviction, whether you're innocent or not. If you have a, if you're a middle income or upper income, you are not gonna go to jail, which works to your advantage. So the cash bail system should not exist. Money should not determine whether or not you are detained. Now, we could have a debate as to whether or not the 
the seriousness of the crime itself should determine it. But but the cash bail system has to go. It is what it is. Um, and it's been that way for a long time because the system was designed to target low income and poor people above all else. I wish we had a lot more time to explore this because just yesterday, Senator Tom Cotton tweeted out that America has an under incarceration problem. Um, clearly absurd at, on the surface of it when you consider the statistics. And then we have in St. Louis where there was the um, the jail uh, protest where people who have been in jail, one uh, individual was there for five years because they could not get a court date. They're not all directly tied to the cash system, but it also it, it does speaks to the the problems that we have in general, politically as well as in the criminal justice system. Could you help us to understand what we can do to push back against these things when the rhetoric and the propaganda is to the point where a sitting senator can absolutely just lie to the entire country and say, our problem here is under incarceration? Well, you know, th this is probably the toughest part of this conversation we're going to have. So, so let me just say something about Tom Cotton. He is right about under-enforcement. The under-enforcement that should have uh, meant that much of the, the current political class would have been subject to more mm. legal scrutiny uh, coming out of the last administration. And we know, mm. of course, that the malfeasance of uh, a lot of Wall Street actors that gave us the Great Recession was also under-enforced or under-incarcerated. But it's also true that um, the people who uh, have been responsible for a lot of the over uh, surveillance and criminalization of low-income people of color are also people like Michael Bloomberg, the, the former moderate to liberal mayor of New York City, and of course, Joe Biden himself, our current president. So when you ask the question, what should we be doing about this? Part of this is that this is not just a Tom Cotton problem or a white nationalist problem or a right winger problem. This is a problem about the punitive culture of America uh, that has been thinking for a long time that punishment is the blunt instrument of social control. And it works, of course, if the point is to exploit people, but it doesn't work if you actually have a country that believes in individual dignity and constitutional rights. And we're just simply not there yet. So we're going to have to do massive re-education of the entire public if we're going to get to a future where we actually believe in justice. I absolutely love the way you frame that there, the under uh, uh, incarceration of former politicians and administrations and uh, at Wall Street, for that matter. Uh, Professor Muhammad, professor of history, race and public policy at Harvard Kennedy School. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Joining us now is Bridget Todd. She is a communications director at Ultraviolet, which is a national gender justice organization and host of the podcast, There Are No Girls on the Internet. Bridget, thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. The pleasure is ours. You're doing a lot of work and coverage of what's happening here in the state of Georgia. Could you just kind of give us an overview of not only what you're seeing, but what also what you've been reporting on? Absolutely. You know, Republican supporters of this law say that it's needed to restore confidence in Georgia's elections. But let's be clear, it's Republicans like Trump who have repeatedly tried to shake the public's confidence in our democracy and our elections by repeatedly claiming that the election was rigged or stolen, even though we know that's not true. And this is what we know about disinformation. The more people hear it, even if it's a lie, the more they believe it. So we know right now that 60 percent of Republican voters say the election was stolen from Trump, despite this being, you know, not true. So it's incredibly disturbing to me that we're witnessing this new voter law in Georgia uh, as a 
a piece of legislation that is actually birthed from disinformation and distortions and lies. And that should be really scary to all of us that we have our legislators making new laws that will actually make it harder for folks to exercise their voting rights in states like Georgia, just based on lies. We should call it what it is. This is this is a law based on a lie. Yeah. And, and, and you know, in these conversations, because we've been covering it and as well as so many outlets, the emphasis has always been on the absurdity of the bills. But I appreciate your angle on it, like specifically the disinformation and the misinformation that's going out and the impact that it has had. Have you seen any escalation in terms of in terms of the amount of people who are once on one side um, were no longer, they didn't support this idea in the first place. And I guess my question is, is this disinformation, because it's so ubiquitous, is it having any impact on people who otherwise would have said, of course there's no, there's no voter fraud, of course there's no problem, but now it's just so much of it. Have you seen any impact there? Oh, what a great question. Absolutely. Look at Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger himself. You know, he himself certified that the election results in Georgia were fine. After an audit of the election results, he himself reaffirmed that the state's new secure ballot voting system accurately counted and reported the results. So he himself said, you know, there's no election fraud, no irregularities. It's all fine. Yet then goes out, goes and, and, and makes this legislation that would make you think that there is something going on. And so I think that people, you know, the reason we all know the reason why he certified the election results is because there was no voting irregularity or widespread fraud or election fraud or anything of that nature. And so you have people who on the one side are saying, well, you know, I'll certify these, these results because they are, you know, completely fine, but yet go along and pass legislation like this. And so, again, I think it's very scary. I think it sets a really scary new precedent. And I think it's being used to to you know, we're seeing this kind of legislation all over the place. You know, it's not just about Georgia. According to the Brennan Center, Republicans have introduced 253 anti-voter bills across 43 states. And we are seeing this widespread crackdown on things like abortion access, things like trans youth. You know, it's all related and it's all amounts to the same thing, which is an attack on our identities and our democracy. You know, and to what extent do you think this is um, kind of a consolation prize for Donald Trump versus the agenda all along. Like we've seen, like we, we we hinge, a lot of the reporting hinges this on Donald Trump, but this has been like the agenda of the Republican party for quite some time. In fact, I was purged from the rolls back in 2004. Could you just speak to how we're communicating on it where so much has been laid at the feet of Donald Trump, which some should, but how much we're missing in our reporting that this is a consistent and ubiquitous effort by Republicans? I'm so glad you brought that up. You know, I talk a lot about Donald Trump and the harm that he has caused in our communities, but let's be clear, this did not start with Trump. You know, this has been part of the Republican agenda for a very long time, chipping away at access to voting, access to voting rights, putting up more barriers for folks to vote, particularly marginalized folks, black and brown voters, very young voters, first time voters, college students. This has been part and parcel of their agenda for a very long time. So Trump definitely, I think, gave us a new language that we're seeing sort of permeate all aspects of our media. Unfortunately, we've seen elected officials like use this lie of legal votes as if widespread voter fraud is actually a thing that we have to contend to in this country. We know that it's not. So this is absolutely not a new thing. This has been part of the Republican agenda for a really long time. But I think Trump has really weaponized it in ways that are really new and scary. Yeah.
No, absolutely. Uh, coming back to Georgia, there's been a lot of efforts um, and a lot of uh, efforts by organizations like New Georgia Project, Black Voters Matter, um, to push back, particularly through boycotts and calling these corporations to bear, bringing them to bear. Um, but I, I'm curious, in, in all of your research and all of your reporting on this, what has what actually can be done now that this legislation has been signed into law? Because a lot of these corporations, there was activism beforehand, and these corporations did nothing beforehand, but now they have a lot to say afterwards. So a lot, to me, it's kind of like a dog and pony show, or am I missing something there? No, you've got it completely right. Um, you know, it definitely does seem a little too little too late. These corporations want it both ways. Uh, I think that you know, I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way. We spoke to, on my podcast, There Are No Girls on the Internet, we talked to independent journalist Anoa Changa, who yes. has been studying what's going on in Georgia for a very long time. And something that she said is that, you know, it's always good to see corporations get on the right side of history, the right side of policy. That's always a good thing. But we need to make sure that we are following the lead of groups on the ground in Georgia, like the ones that you just mentioned, New, New Georgia Project, um, Black Voters Matter, making sure that we're taking our cues from folks who are actually in Georgia. I think it's great when corporations, for better or for worse, or maybe too little too late, are on the right side of policy and on the right side of history. But we want to make sure that we're echoing what the organizers on the ground in Georgia say they want to happen. So I think that's really, really important to make sure that we're echoing and amplifying their demands and following their lead and not from the outside trying to you know, push a boycott if that's not what they're saying is going to be helpful. But in terms of what we can all do, I think following the lead of these organizations is gonna be big. If you've got money, you know, extra money sitting around, donate to some of these organizations, put your, put your wallet where your values are and, and sort of help these organizations that have been doing this important work for so long be as strong as they can because it's gonna be a tough fight coming up, you know? Mm, yeah, absolutely. And definitely have to give a shout out to my sister, Noah Changa. She's been phenomenal here in Atlanta for years. Um, speaking of just here uh, in Atlanta, the the number of drop boxes and the, the just the different aspects of the particular legislation seems to be uniquely designed to hurt Fulton County, um, one of the blackest counties in the entire state and one of the counties that helped uh, not only uh, John Ossoff and Warfia Warnock, but also Joe Biden. Could you speak to just some of the complexities and, and the ways this particular legislation is designed specifically to hurt communities of color, particularly black communities. I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, people like to dance around it, but you and I can see what's going on. It's no surprise that these this legislation is meant to hurt black and brown voters and put up unneeded barriers to their ability to vote. So in places like Fulton County, you know, that is definitely a big black democratic voting bo block that's fairly reliable, as you said. Um, this legislation will hurt folks there. You know, legislation like making it harder to have, you know, mobile voting locations, you know, for places in Fulton County that are impacted by things like long lines where you have to go out to vote and wait for hours and hours and hours just to make your, make your, you know, make your voice heard. You know, this legislation cracks down on things that people are doing to make it easier for folks to vote. And it's clear that it's, it's being targeted in voting blocks and districts that are heavily black, heavily brown and heavily Democrat. You know, initially they wanted to outlaw Sunday voting, what we call souls to the polls, which many black churches for years have been using to increase access to voting for a very long time. And so fortunately, this particular position, uh, part of the bill did not pass. But what does that say about who they're trying to target and who they're trying to keep from the polls that they would even put that in the legislation? So I think it's very clear this legislation will hurt black and brown voters the most.
And one of the ways Georgia was able to pull this off, along with a couple of other states that are trying to do this, is because they gutted the Voting, uh, the, the voting Rights Act um, in Shelby versus Holder. And with the time that we have left, could you speak about the path to fixing this, uh, particularly the H.R. 1, um, trying to get it passed in the Senate, as well as overcoming the filibuster? Talk about the politics of all this. Yeah, I think I'm glad that organizations like the New Georgia Project and uh, Black Voters Matter have already sort of said that they're going to hash this out in the courts. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that works. But I also think we do need stronger voting voting rights and access to voting rights and legislation like like H.R. 1. That will make that easier. You know, in a democracy, you want to make it easier for folks to vote, not harder. And so I am a big proponent of all of the legislative paths that we have to make sure that making it easier for folks to cast their ballots is codified in our legislation. That's what good democracies do. That's what strong democracies do. So I definitely think, you know, the legal challenges that groups are already already mounting, plus the legislative strategy of codifying some more uh, voting bills in our legislation is going to be really important. And last but not least, I, I know you saw, along with the rest of the, of the country, saw what happened with uh, Representative uh, Park Cannon as she was simply trying to witness it. Um, could you just speak about the, just that incident, but also just the, the, the imagery of Brian Kemp, along with his comrades, signing that uh, legislation into law while a black representative was being carried away? Yes. So let's also point, I'm glad that you brought this up. Let's also point out that these, that Brian Kemp and a group of white male legislators signed that legislation under a portrait of a slave plantation, right? That, yeah. that, that, that imagery is not lost on me. At the same time, you have a black lawmaker being dragged out by police in handcuffs for simply trying to witness this. I think that that, that visual really tells you all you need to know about what's going on in Georgia. It's so clear this is an attack on Georgia's black and brown communities, a way to try to make make it so that they cannot have their full access to their you know, constitutionally protected right to, to voting. And we need to call it what it is. I think that it's been hard and disappointing and a bit disturbing to see so many outlets dancing around the fact that this is racist and it's based on a racist lie that that Trump and the Republicans had the election stolen from them. And I think things like what you see with, um, you know, the lawmaker being arrested just for trying to witness what what was happening, I think really yeah. underscore that. It's very clear to me what's going on. Absolutely. Bridget Todd, communications director at Ultraviolet and host of the podcast. There are no girls on the Internet. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Pleasure's ours.